Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. This story is going to get bigger, and it should be massive now. It is in Europe. And that is that Canada has made the decision, this country has made the decision, to uh, release to Germany a Russian gas turbine, which was in Montreal for repairs, and which was being held in Canada in support of sanctions against Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. Now, Putin got into the act, and he declared Russia requires the turbine to continue natural gas flow to Germany. Ukraine, by the way, offered its gas pipelines to maintain gas flow from Russia to Germany, which Putin refused. The Ukrainian government and uh, their Ministry of Foreign Affairs has uh, issued a release. I'll just read you a little bit of it from the top. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine and the Ministry of Energy of Ukraine expressed their deep disappointment in connection with the decision of the Canadian government to issue a permit for the return to Germany of the Nord Stream 1 turbines stream repaired by Siemens Canada. On the day when Canada announced this decision, the Army of the Russian Federation shelled residential quarters in Mykolaiv, Kharkiv, uh, Krivi, Ri, as well as a number of settlements in the Zaporizhia region. The Russian Federation acted as a terrorist state, deliberately striking houses and other objects of civilian infrastructure. Peaceful people died. Dozens were injured. That's from the government of Ukraine. There is also a release uh, from my guest, Alexandra Khachi. She's the president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, on behalf of the Congress. But we'll uh, ask uh, Ms. Khachi to explain this herself, to talk, speak to that. And uh, she's with us along with Boris Rizhnevsky, former Liberal Member of Parliament, who, as you and uh, Mr. Rizhnevsky has been on this program on a number of occasions, he, uh, he was invited by Mr. Trudeau to sit at the Prime Minister's side during President Zelensky's speech to Parliament. I just want to read you one more thing, and I read it just before the break in the last hour. You've heard Dr. Terry Bro on this program on a number of occasions. He is one of the most respected energy experts in Europe, maybe the world. And he was responsible for supply for France, energy supply. I sent uh, him an email this morning and asked for his thoughts on what has happened. Here's what he wrote. And he writes, Dear Roy, you can use my emails as quoted. Germany is desperate as any further reduction in Russian gas supply is going to directly lead to industrial closure and recession. Germany thinks forcing Canada to return the turbine will lead to increases in Russian flows via Nord Stream 1. Germany could have asked Russia to ship more gas via Ukraine, as Ukraine is asking. Unfortunately, it, Germany, didn't put any pressure, uh, unfortunately it didn't, Germany, and put pressure on Canada not to follow the sanctions rules. This is a clear win for Putin, and Germany has no guarantee to get more gas. The EU is definitely losing here. Did Canada get something from Germany in exchange? Question mark. Hope this helps. Thierry. All right. Let me introduce my guests. And one of them was with us yesterday, Alexandra Kuchy. She's the president of the Ukraine-Canadian Congress. Alexandra, thank you for coming back. Thank you, Roy, for inviting me. And Boris Vrznevsky, former Liberal Member of Parliament, uh, who's been on this program on a number of occasions, speaking about the terrible reality on the ground in uh, in Ukraine. Hi, Boris. Uh, always a pleasure, Roy. Thank you. 
Alexander, please, uh, for our listeners across the country, and I've, I've, I've just done what I can to introduce this situation, explain to us in, 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 in your terms, in better terms than I can do, what's going on here, what has Canada decided to do, and why is it so objectionable? Well, uh, for for the reasons that you have stated uh, so eloquently, Roy, and that is because this is uh, backing down in the face of uh, clear Russian blackmail of Canada and of Germany. And there's a reason that we don't accede to uh, the demands of blackmailers or negotiate with terrorists, and that's because it's always a slippery slope. It's never the end of the story. And uh, this story, I think, is getting even a little more complex because I just read a CBC report, sorry, a Globe and Mail report, um, that suggests that there may be as many as six turbines here in Canada already. And that coincides with the use by Minister Wilkinson in his press release uh, of the plural form of turbine. So uh, we have asked for clarification uh, exactly how many turbines are there, have they been released yet, and what are the terms of that release? And of course, uh, Global Affairs is citing uh, privacy issues. They've directed us to Siemens, and uh, we will see what they say. We've also asked to see the order in council, which would have been necessary to facilitate all of this. All right. Boris, you're a former member of parliament, liberal member of parliament, who sat beside Mr. Trudeau, when President Zelensky uh, addressed this country just a few months ago, what is your sense? I mean, here's Putin getting into it, because Putin's the one who said, well, I won't be able to provide Germany with the natural gas that it requires if I don't get these turbines back. So Putin's right in the middle of this. What What are your feelings about what this country and what this government is doing? So let me be clear. Uh, This is a betrayal. Prime Minister Trudeau has betrayed Ukraine and her people in the face of Putin's genocidal war. And it's an appeasement of Germany's Schroederized political lobby, an appeasement of Putin's genocidal war machine. So those, we, we need to be clear in our wording. And what Russia has done is created a false flag operation. It's not about the turbine or turbines. If Putin so will, tomorrow they could turn the taps back up in Russia. In fact, it appears that there's additional or more than enough turbine capacity in North Stream 1. And as you mentioned, Ukraine, Poland as well has a pipeline that could more been adequately cover any shortfall. Uh, Ukraine has a capacity in their pipelines, in fact, have very astutely offered reduced rates to Germany to transport gas. So Germany would benefit by that. And a sidebar to this, uh, it's quite interesting that as Russia has bombed Ukrainian schools, hospitals, hotels where refugees from Donbass were living, grain silos. They've assiduously avoided hitting Ukraine's gas pipelines and infrastructure in the hope that once they fully occupy Ukraine, that will be part of their 
gas pipeline uh, infrastructure. So this is all a false flag. The real intent here is to sow divisions amongst allies and to create internal divisions domestically in Germany and in Canada. And unfortunately, uh, Canada has fallen into this Putin trap. Uh, there's, uh, and and uh, Alexandra had mentioned some of the slippery wording in Minister Wilkinson's uh, uh, statement. Um, he, he referenced, as have you, that Germany will suffer significant hardship. I, I note that in Germany they've uh, called on people to turn down their air conditioning and that they will turn off the heating in their swimming pools uh, uh, this summer. Well, when you talk about significant hardship, uh, explain that to the, the, the townsfolk of Kremenet, yeah. who three days ago, uh, after being occupied uh, by Russian forces in their suburbs, were being pulled out of their homes and shot in the streets. Um, and then the other thing that Mr. Wilkinson said, that these were uh, uh, waivers that would be time-limited and revocable. So are Canadian principles now time-limited, or are our ethics revocable? Uh, Alexander, when it comes to the issue of uh, compromising sanctions, in your, in your commentary today for the for the uh, um, Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, you write about that when you, you said, in acceding, acceding to Germany's request, Canada will not only contravene its policy of isolating Russia, it will set a dangerous precedent that will lead to the weakening of the sanctions regime imposed on Russia. And then you, uh, you mentioned past appeasement of Russia and what, uh, what that uh, created. Please, please continue that thought, if you would. Well, we all know that uh, the Western world has stood by uh, seemingly helplessly while uh, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008 and in 2014 when uh, Russia annexed Crimea and invaded uh, parts of the Donetsk and uh, uh, Luhansk regions in eastern Ukraine. So there was not a particularly robust reaction at that time, and that really gave uh, Putin the green light to do as he wishes uh, with Ukraine. And uh, it's that kind of compromise or, or, or appeasement uh, that, that led us to where we are today. Uh, and in fact, uh, the drums of war were beating long before February of, of 2022, and many of the Western allies were reluctant to arm Ukraine, were reluctant to confront Putin because they believed that that would provoke an invasion rather than prevent one. So here we are, and, and I think that Putin has really tested the resolve of the Western allies and found them to be wanting. Um, you had mentioned earlier also that uh, the French are preparing for a complete cutoff uh, of gas supplies, and uh, similarly, Poland, Bulgaria, and Finland have already faced that because they stood up to Putin when he demanded that they pay him in rubles. So uh, it's difficult for me to understand why Germany uh, is seeking this kind of special treatment. Of course, we want to help our allies. Nobody wants to punish them. But surely there's another way, as your uh, uh, expert that you quoted earlier has said. Yeah, Dr. Terry Moreau. So now the question uh, becomes, 
I, I think. What next? What now, Boris? What what now? So here's, um, in regards to this precedent, what makes it uh, even worse? There are over 50 countries that have uh, stood together and put sanctions in place against Russia uh, due to this genocidal war. And in this case, Canada has created, Canada, a G7 country, a NATO member country, has created the precedent. So it's not just, you know, any other country. We're a G7 country and a NATO member, and we've created this particular precedent. And then internally, it's problematic. As a former parliamentarian, uh, there were two legislative acts in June uh, on this file. The first was uh, Parliament voted to uh, provide the legislation necessary to not only uh, sanction, to freeze assets, Russian assets, but to seize them to be disposed of and afterwards sold off to provide funding for the rebuilding of Ukraine when that, when that time comes. So the will of Parliament was clear. Secondly, they voted unanimously, unanimously. Every single member of Parliament voted to state that this was a genocide. And here, while Parliament's not in session... The Prime Minister's office announces that, notwithstanding the will that, of Parliament, that we will now not only freeze but seize Russian assets, uh, the, uh, the Prime Minister's office has decided that uh, sanctions are time-limited and revocable. And yeah. that's yeah. the phraseology, the wording used by Minister Wilkinson. Can you imagine, during the time of apartheid, Prime Minister Mulroney at that time stood up to our closest allies, the UK and the US, who were against sanctioning South Africa. He stood firm on a matter of principle. So, Boris, what are you, what are you saying? If you had an opportunity right now to, to say something to Mr. Trudeau directly about this, what would you say to him? That it's a terrible political mistake. Uh, when the Prime Minister was elected, he stated clearly Canada is back. This is not in the spirit of Lester B. Pearson, Brian Mulroney, Lloyd Axworthy, Paul Martin's responsibility to protect. And uh, this, this is a, a mistake that needs to be reversed. Okay. And it's against the will of the Parliament. Alexandra, I have uh, less than a minute. Please, uh, final thoughts from you, at least for this segment. Well, I think this is a two-step process. Uh, Canada has taken the decision to send the turbines to Germany. There is still an opportunity for Germany to do the right thing and not send these turbines to Russia. And I think that uh, all of our allies need to implore Germany to do the right thing. And as Daryl Bricker told us um, earlier, the president of Ipsos, healthcare is still the number one issue in this country. We're going to talk some more about uh, health care. I just want to tell you this. I'm receiving lots of emails to uh, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Where can we listen back to the uh, segment that you just aired with the president of the uh, Ukrainian Council and, um, and with Mr. Brzezhnevsky? You'll be able to go to our webpage, which is now globalnews.ca forward slash Roy Green. 
globalnews.ca forward slash Roy Green. It'll be there for you to listen to and or download as you choose shortly after this broadcast ends. So let's get to the issue of, uh, of health care. It is the number one issue that affects everybody. You ask people, what's the most important thing about being Canadian? What sets us apart? It's our health care system. Everybody will tell you that, or most people will. Yeah, not so fast, Bunky. Things are changing, and not for the better. So again, we spoke yesterday with the Canadian Medical Association president about what the CMA describes as the collapse of Canada's health care system. And today we're going to talk about nurses, as nurses across this country are burning out, quitting their jobs, or leaving for better-paying jobs with more stable hours, perhaps in the United States or elsewhere. Nurses are also fearful, I read, about growing numbers of incidents of physical attacks as patients and their families take out their frustrations over the healthcare system failure on frontline nurses. Linda Silas is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. Ms. Silas will uh, be attending the Council of the Federation meetings beginning in Victoria tomorrow. All the premiers and territorial leaders are there, and ultimately the provinces will administer health care in their jurisdictions. Uh, so, Linda, thank you for coming back on the program. It was, it was so disturbing to hear Dr. Smart talk about the kind of trouble that we're in in this country. We know. Because I'm, I'm sure millions of us know somebody who is caught in a line somewhere, isn't getting the treatment they require, or cancer patients not being di- diagnosed quickly enough. From your perspective, how much trouble is our healthcare system in? And if you were to compare healthcare in July 2022 to healthcare in July, I don't know, 2015, wasn't great then. Uh, how much worse is it now? Well, good afternoon, Rory. In 2015, uh, we were looking to improve our healthcare system. Everyone was talking about improvement in mental health, home care, pharmacare. That's what I would have been talking on your show back then. What we're talking now is the survival of our system. Uh, Dr. Smart uh, is right. We are very concerned as healthcare uh, workers in the system. How can we treat patients? How can we treat people living in Canada with a system that is so understaffed? And some politicians don't get it. They think if they increase the bed count that that will work. Well, a bed is only a bed if you don't have the appropriate uh, healthcare professionals to take care of the patient. And we're in a crisis right now. So let's talk about the nurses whom we represent. And I read a story the other day about a Toronto nurse who left St. Michael's Hospital because her work hours were just unacceptable. They were unbearable. And the stresses and strains that she felt. So she moved to Texas, where she has stable work hours, salaries three times what it is in Canada. And she, she regretted, I read, leaving this country and leaving her friends and family. But it seemed to be the only thing that made sense I'm paraphrasing. You've said that one out of every two nurses, if I understand it correctly, one out of every two nurses in this country is thinking of quitting. Yes? Yes. And I read the same story, and I hear those stories over and over. It's almost like employers, health employers, don't care or really don't know what to do because it didn't make sense for somebody to don't, not to sit with that nurse and say, what will it take to keep you? I was flying uh, from New Brunswick to Victoria uh, yesterday morning, 
And a nurse, 60 years old, said, Linda, I retired. I couldn't take it anymore. And nobody even asked me if I wanted to stay, if they could do something to make me stay. And she has 40 years of experience underneath her belt. Wow. And that's what we're hearing every day is nobody gives. Um, One of those <laughs> nobody things. Nobody cares. You know, I'm trying to be very polite here. But nobody cares. They see me as a number. And they forced me to stay beyond my shift, not caring that I'm tired, not caring that I have a family at home, and not caring that I'm putting my license in jeopardy every time I work understaffed and overly tired because something could happen to my patients. It is it is unbelievable. I'm not saying I don't believe you. Mm-hmm. It is unbelievable, within the greater context of the word unbelievable, that in our healthcare system, which is so stressed, and people are dying in, because they're not getting the treatment they require, that a, f- a nurse with 40 years' experience, nobody even cares if she leaves. You want to leave? Okay, bye. That's, mm-hmm. that's outrageous. When you have, when, when the situation is, the, people, the hospitals and medical facilities are understaffed. Let me ask you this. Are there nurses lining up? by the thousands to step in and take these positions that are becoming vacant. Uh, now, lining up is a big word, but I think they would. You know, if they no, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just asking, Linda, are there, are there many, many nurses in, in reserve who don't have a job now who are just waiting for one to become available and are ready to jump in and get at it? So if I look at the province of Ontario, since you mentioned that one, only about 57%, I might even be lower today, work full-time. So what do we do with those part-time nurses? How can we convince them to work more hours and commit to them that if you increase your hours, that will be it. We won't be asking you to do mandatory overtime. We will respect you. How do we commit the casual nurses or those who are 60 years old who felt they had to retire early? How can we bring them back? I think they're there and they're willing. And that's my message to the premiers this week. We need to work together to give a little bit of hope at the end of the tunnel so we retain all that experience and we we keep the system alive. Do they listen? Do the premiers, if you get this, so they're all together, <clears throat> pardon me, sitting at the table, the premiers and the territorial uh, leaders, they're all sitting at the table, and you you share this information with them. Mm-hmm. Dr. Smart shares the information with them. I'm assuming that somebody in their offices has already made them aware of the situation of healthcare in their province. Do they actually listen, or do their eyes glaze over and say, oh, another submission, I can't take many more of these? In other words, are we getting, is the patient is, and are the healthcare professionals getting the support and the representation from the provincial leaders that is required when you're there tomorrow. You see, they hear it from more than nurses, more than doctors. They hear it every time they walk down the street. Uh, We know that primary care, which means uh, what is about 5 million Canadians don't have either a family doc or a nurse practitioner. They hear that every day. They know their neighbors didn't get their hip surgery or their cancer treatments being delayed. They know that nobody was there taking care of them when they were in the hospital. So they hear the same stories from every end. And that's how you change 
political minds is really when everyone's on the same page. What we're going to be telling them, we're with you. But we're also telling them that there's not one province or territories that will be able to fix this mess by themselves. They need the federal government. They need an agency. They need all the experts, all the best practice around the world. Let's examine this together and tell that 60-year-old nurse, I want you to stay. I need you to stay. What can I do? To tell that 35-year-old nurse who has two kids, I commit to work with me. I will commit not to force overtime on you and give you good nurse-patient ratio so you can feel good about your job. And, of course, help our students, our internationally educated nurses. The list of solutions is long, but right now it's only a list on paper. We really have to work together and get the federal government at the table. It's a nonsense that uh, we haven't had a discussion with the federal government on all of this yet. Yeah. You know, people say healthcare is free. Well, but if you can't get it, what does that matter? And it's not free because you pay for it with your taxes. Exactly. It's 8% of GDP. So all the products we do in the country, 8% of it goes to pay for just healthcare workforce. It's 12, 13% for everything else, the bricks and mortars, but just our workforce. So those those are big numbers. They're huge numbers. And again, you point out one of the most significant numbers, and it's not dealt with. I mean, I hear it over and over. I've used it over and over. And and it's just like throwing, I don't know, something at the wall, and it slides down on the floor and just lies there in a puddle. And, the, and that is that 5 million Canadians do not have a primary health care provider. That's almost, that's, that's, that's almost, that's about 17%, 15 or 17% of our national population. I'm just doing rough math here. Mm-hmm. Um, has no primary physician or go-to or person, nurse practitioner. Or nurse practitioner. So the whole system fails at the very first stop because they have nowhere to go. Where do they go? A walk-in clinic or an ER? Those are their options. Yeah. I'm going to flip this around and just have this thought. How long is it going to take us, even if all the things that you're going to suggest and Dr. Smart is going to suggest tomorrow and Tuesday, to the premiers, how long will it take to get the healthcare system into shape where it's actually responsive to the needs of the people who pay for it? You and me. That's a question we can't answer, and it's funny because yesterday an accountant asked me that, and he just deals with numbers. And he says, Linda, when you give me the numbers of vacancy in one province and then versus the new graduates, it will take years and years and years. I said, yes, but what we need to do is stop the bleed. We need to stop the nurses from leaving, the one in two, the 20% of all healthcare workers that are going to retire early. We need to stop that and then start looking at how do we do it better? How do we uh, make it a better primary care, better home care, better mental health? The list goes on. And, you know, what I really liked about your introduction, Roy, is that they're blaming it on the pandemic. But the way I see it is the pandemic also showed that when we were in a health crisis, the federal government stepped up and really uh, stepped up and helped the provinces and territories. They need to do this in this health human resource crisis, and they need to step up. And our message to all the premiers and the prime minister is, Nurses, doctors, the other healthcare teams, we stepped up during the pandemic and we're still there because the pandemic is not over. 
mm-hmm. time for them to show up yeah. for real respect and yeah. uh, really come with solutions. Yeah. So uh, I saw an email. I'm just I was trying to find it, but there's so many coming in. Um, and the, the person who sent the email said, well, one of the things we could do is just go and hire uh, the best medical professionals in other parts of the world, pay them extra to come to Canada. But I'm guessing, you tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, but I'm guessing that medical professionals are at a premium and Canada wouldn't be the only country. I don't even know if we're doing this, mm-hmm. but Canada wouldn't be the only country trying to grab the very best of medical professionals from another jurisdiction. Not that that's necessarily fair, but that's how the system, that's how it works in the world. Mm-hmm. It, it, would, that be, uh, would that be correct? You know, that there's a lot of people competing for the limited numbers of, 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 of healthcare professionals who might be available. Yeah, you're right. But we also forget that we already have the best in the world working in Canada, from the best medical specialists to the best nursing teams and others. Uh, We just need to take care of them and respect them, and they will attract. You know, I always say retention recruitment, because if you can't retain your staff, you will never be able to recruit, and it doesn't matter the price. How many specialists did we recruit in community XYZ? They got their housing, their children, their spouses, got jobs, and they didn't stay because they couldn't do their job properly. Mm. And that's where we need to work together and say, yes, come and work in Canada. Come and work in my community, and I guarantee you, you will be the best doctor, the best nurse ever because we're going to give you the proper staff to do it. Is it necessary, to hyperbole here, metaphoric and hyperbole, is it necessary to blow this thing up and, and reinvent it? so that there's a complete new approach, maybe taking the best of what exists in other countries that is working in other countries and adapt it and use them here. Roy, maybe I've been uh, around too long, but how many commissions have we had on health care? Yeah. You know, uh, 2002, the Roy uh, Romano Commission. 2004 was the Health Accord, where it was the health for a next, the next generation, mostly dealt with the financial aspect. And then we hit a recession in 2008. We had the wait time alliance. Uh, We don't need another study. We know what we need. We need primary health care. That is key because we as individuals have to take care of ourselves to make sure we don't go in those hospitals. We don't go into those long-term facilities. So those are the basics. We need proper housing. We need a national pharma care program. We need mental health services. You know, we need good jobs. All of that is part of the social fabric that will keep us healthy. But the politicians have to be on the same page. But when that doesn't work, you need to be able to go and get an ambulance to go to the ER and get services and not end up in a line of uh, wait times and beds and hallways. There's a Globe and Mail headline, Pierre Polyev to skip Calgary leadership debate, will attend party with Brett Wilson. The uh, Conservative Party leadership debate, which took place on Friday, will have done so without Paul, Pierre Polyev and Patrick Brown, who was on this program yesterday. Mr. Polyev wasn't there because he was attending the Prairie Rowdy 22 Stampede event organized by his friend and entrepreneur Brett Wilson. 
And uh, Mr. Wilson, as I've been telling you, and as you know, is a former investment banker and was featured on CBC's Dragon Den broadcasts. He's a strong critic of Justin Trudeau, doesn't believe Jean Charest can represent the West properly if he were to win the Conservative Party leadership. And of uh, Pierre Polyev, Mr. Wilson on Prairie Rowdy 2022 had written, Our country truly deserves a leader who can run it with respect and freedom we Canadians deserve. Brett Wilson, good to have you on the program. I, I'm not whether you're sure whether you're on Zoom or on the phone, but I'm, I'm thinking you're there. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm on the phone for <laughs> audio. I'm on Zoom for video. And I think Rogers is interfering with our connection. This is the, the only technology challenge I've had in years. But here we are. It's Sunday afternoon. It's middle of Stampede. And yes, absolutely. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about Canada, Pierre, or any topic you choose. Okay. So... I just hadn't heard the term technical difficulties for, for so long. I'm supposed to work with that. Anyhow, yeah. so, so, uh, so Brett, uh, Dragon's Den. I was thinking today, this morning when I got up, thinking about working on the show and what we were going to be doing. I thought the Conservative Party leadership race is sort of a political version of Dragon's Den. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Right? Everyone shows up and says, I am the right pitch. Tell me why. Are you interested in uh as you know, most dragons reject most bitches, so, so we'll yeah. see what Canada does. Yeah, I, I'm going to leave my entrepreneurial efforts to the side here. So before I ask you about Mr. Polyev and ask you about the conservative debate or leadership chase <laughs> and where this country is and what this country requires, can I get from you, first of all, your overall assessment of Canada's state of political health? We're failing. And the reason we're failing has been... The alarmist movement, the extreme left, has influenced outcomes on, on technology to some degree, but particularly energy. And without the invasion of Ukraine, the world wouldn't be as sensitive today as it, or it wouldn't be as sensitive as it is today over the issue of energy security not just energy supply, but energy security. Canada has failed in terms of being a global participant in energy. We're the third largest owner, and this is Canada, not the oil companies. Canada owns the reserves. We're the third largest oil reserves in the world, and yet we import nearly 35 40% of our oil comes from foreign, um, call it less than ethical, less than accountable regimes, and we bring that oil in because we don't feel like transporting it across Canada in a pipeline. So that's the first issue, is our inability to be energy self-sufficient. And now that there's a global concern about energy security, energy self-sufficiency has a brand new, um, call it light shining on it. The other is our inability to participate in the global energy economy. This belief that as one or one and a half percent of global greenhouse emissions that we need to be a world leader. I was at a meeting yesterday where someone talked about how we need to, even if we don't like the economics of what we're doing, which is destroying the economy, but if we don't like those economics, we need to show the world how to go. And I my immediate response was, there isn't a single citizen of India, Japan, or pardon me, India, China, or Russia who cares what we do. We are not a world leader. What we can do is smart, but if we were really smart, we could supply ethical, responsible energy to the world. And that would be LNG, it would be LPG, it would be crude oil, and in fact, coal. Coal mined in the, in the resources of Canada is still being, I mean, let's be clear, China's expanding its coal-burning fleet. And so if anyone's going to supply it, why not Canada? They're going so to is Germany. Let's supply it. 
Well, and Germany is now turning on its coal-fired power exactly. plants. Why? Because it turned off its nuclear. And yep. nuclear is by far the most efficient form Isn't of it stunning supply. to realize that Germany is turning on the coal but refuses to turn on the nuclear? Well, it's part you of can't the, outthink those what, who aren't thinking. What I've read is that it's almost impossible to turn their nuclear on in a timely manner. So they've, they've shut themselves. They've got themselves in a box. Mm. I worry. I really do, do worry about what's going to happen this winter when it's too cold and the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And I love calling renewables, which I'm heavily invested in. Let's be crystal clear. I'm one of the largest owners of electric generation individually in Canada. Myself and a partner own a 300-megawatt power plant in central Alberta. We burn gas. We burn it efficiently. We understand the business. But going back to the big picture, the renewables are not reliable. They're an important part of our grid. I have no issue with that whatsoever as technology advances, batteries, storage, other, other tools. But until it's reliable. You tell me which day of the week you don't want power, and we'll start organizing yeah, around that. Yeah, yeah. It's impossible. Uh, Terry Bro, uh, and I talked about him earlier on the program when we were discussing this uh, turbine that's being released by Canada to Germany, ostensibly, but then it's going to go to Russia. Yeah. So Terry Bro, um, professor at Paris Pro University, former director of energy security and energy supply for France, told us on this program just about six or eight weeks ago, that the situation in Europe is so dire as far as energy supply is concerned that he has great concerns about blackouts in Europe this winter, not next winter, in a few months. That tells you, where I, the, that tells you what it's like, what, what the reality of the situation is. My reading, my network says that Germany is the tip of the iceberg in terms of the problem that it will continue. I mean, we just saw you know, the Dutch are unwinding over issues of nitrogen fertilizer. I mean, there is challenges across Europe. But where I started this conversation, Roy, was to say that the eco-alarmists, the eco-extremists, have taken the agenda and moved us so far. And again, do I have a problem with CO2 and emissions? Not as much as others, but I respect the concern, so I'm aligned. I'm completely in on the understanding that we need to control pollution, in particular this overarching concern about CO2. So I'm good with that. But if we're going to solve the world's problems, we should be helping China undermine its coal efforts by supplying it with crude or with uh, natural gas but no canada doesn't do pipelines canada doesn't do lng terminals and quebec in particular they should be cut off from all energy supply because they've said now we don't believe that there should be any development no pipelines no energy development we don't want anything to do with fossil fuels yeah. well if they got cut off tomorrow we would shut down their their, well, their magnesium industry, we would shut down their uh, cement industry, we would shut down their pavement industry, we would shut down pretty well the entire economy. And yet somehow someone has taken the belief that by shutting down fossil fuels today, we're going to be better off. It's, it's sheer lunacy. Uh, Brent, let's talk about politics. There's a, there's a uh, geographic divide in this country. There's a political divide in this country. Sometimes I wonder whether, you know, if we'll ever really pull it together. I don't know. I hope so. But when you look at the political landscape, what is it that caused you to decide that Pierre Polyev is the person you're going to support to not only be the leader of the Conservative Party, but also Prime Minister of this country? Well, it goes back with time. I mean, I've enjoyed a friendship with Andrew Scheer, with Stephen Harper, with uh, 
in particular, uh, Aaron O'Toole, who I helped sponsor in Calgary. I thought the party's own internal divisions have been detrimental to the party. But I've known Pierre Poilev for about a decade. I had the privilege of having a dinner with him, a small group of business people. We were actually having lunch or dinner with John Baird, and John Baird said, can I bring a, uh, a young and bright? And so this was a decade ago, and uh, Pierre walks in the room, and we're having dinner, and uh, three hours later, I left with a, uh, an extraordinary impression, uh, impressed impression is probably a better way of putting it, with Pierre. And so I followed him, I've watched him, and at the time, there was Michelle Rempel and Pierre, were seemed to be the voice of the party, because they were the two people that were most constantly on the headlines, if you will, in terms of question period, asking thoughtful questions and getting meaningless answers. And so I've watched him evolve as he stepped up his game in terms of uh, looking to be a leader. And by the way, I get a, quite a kick out of the Globe and Mail article. I actually interviewed the Globe and Mail to give them that story. And there was two things that were fundamentally wrong about the headline. Number one, he didn't slip away from another event. I had booked him to do an event long before this so-called leaders debate, which ended up collapsing. They ended up just having three people there, and they did sort of a roundtable interview. They did not do a leaders debate. So it was, it was a fake headline. And, that, and secondly, it was dismissive when the Globe and Mail said that he's going to a party. He was going to an adolescent fundraising, a mental health fundraising program. Um, and it wasn't a party. It's a charity event. And again, it's just the wordsmithing was meant to be dismissive and divisive. And so I get a kick out of that. Did I care? No, I retweeted it. I had some fun with it. But here we are. And as a nation, I happen to love confederation. I believe in confederation. I believe in Canada. I'm half French by birth on both sides of my family, my roots. So, and I'm heavily invested in Ontario uh, and a number of different businesses. So I'm actively following what goes on across our country. And the fact that Pierre is one of the few people who has actually stood up and said, I believe in the West and I believe in confederation. I believe the West needs a fair deal. Yesterday, one of the other leading candidates, Jean Charest, came out with an all Alberta pitch, but that was yesterday. He's had 20 years to say something positive of Alberta and he's failed. So I am all in on Pierre. There's absolutely no question. I believe he understands what needs to be done differently than what the federal liberal government is doing right now. And the federal liberal government is failing. It's failing at airports. It's failing at passports. It's failing at energy. It's uh, um, global energy. All of a sudden, energy security has some meaning to them. But the fact that we have the ability to be a global participant has never meant much to them. It's when, frustrating. So again, all in on Pierre. When you hear, when you read when you're told that Pierre Polyev is somehow dangerous to the ethics of Canada, to the fundamental philosophy of this country, to the inclusive nature of Canada, what do you say when you, what, what do you think, what are you thinking when you read that? Well, it's almost amusing when I look at what the, and the media tries to portray as the ex, accepting sort of some of the extreme commentary. By the way, the secret for me on social media is to not read the responses. I put my knowledge, I put my belief, I put my love, I put my passion for doing what's right out there. And I see that in Pierre. I watch a crowd respond to him, and it's amazing. His engagement, his uh, inspirational uh, perspective is, is all in. Having said that, I listened to some of the social media. Let's remember some of the first stories in the headlines were that Pierre Pelev was a populist. So I look up populist. I'm kind of wondering, well, what, what does that mean? And a populist is someone who appeals to the population. I'm kind of going, geez, so this is a problem? that he appeals to a broader cross-section of the population, people are desperately looking for words. He was associated with the World Economic Forum for a while. 
He's never been and doesn't plan to go. And yet he was considered a student of the, of the World Economic Forum. It makes no sense. So you have to be a little bit, we have to be a little bit careful about interpreting the, uh, call it the extreme views that are being tabled, because it's out of desperation is the way I Does it. this reflect in any way, from your perspective, does it reflect the difference, the political um, divide that exists between Western Canada, Central Canada, and Eastern Canada? No. And the reason I would say no is that I watch the response to Pierre at events across the country, and it's universal. There's going to be some problems for some people in Quebec when Pierre says, hey, we think we should stop importing oil and bring Canadian oil across Canada. But you stop and think about why people would object to being self-sufficient, especially in a world that's now got supply chain risk. Supply chain risk is going to dominate some of the challenges. I'm building a power plant right now, expanding a power plant. The cost of that power plant went up by almost a third in the 12 months that we had fixed prices. Why did it go up by a third with fixed prices? Supply chain issues, supply mm-hmm. chain risk. And so we had to pay premiums to get stuff that we'd already committed to. Okay. It's coming from other countries. So I believe that across Canada we have support for Pierre. I genuinely do. Okay, we have uh, information that comes to us regularly from the Montreal Economic Institute about what Quebecers, not uh, not the politicians, not the elites, what the, the folks yeah. want. Yeah. And the folks in Quebec, by significant majority, they want their oil from Western Canada. They don't want it from the United States, so that's number two. They don't want it from other parts mm-hmm. of the world. They want it from uh, Western Canada. They want it by pipeline. They don't want it by train. They don't want it by truck. They don't want it by tanker. They want it by pipeline. So the people in Quebec are at odds with their government, which doesn't want to have anything to do with, uh, with, uh, re- with, with energy um, other than renewables. Do you believe, and we have a minute here. Boy, I wish we had more time. Do you have uh, faith in the I don't know if you already answered this. Do you have faith mm-hmm. in the future of Canada as a, as it's constructed now geographically? Under Trudeau or his, call it successors, whether it's Mark Carney or Christian Freeland, no. I am fundamentally concerned about their their leadership is about dividing the party. The disrespect that Trudeau has, I mean, he's in town right now, and I'm watching social media, and it's dumping all over him. He's being booed as he goes around. So they've kept his trail a secret, whereas other people, the other leaders, are all very public about what they're doing. He's a secret. And why? It's because he gets booed everywhere he goes. He has been undermining, from my perspective. And by the way, I enjoyed a friendship, a personal friendship with Pierre, or pardon me, Justin, um, prior to him running for office. And I have literally, I literally have 10 seconds, Brett. I'm sorry, but that's all we have. No, that's fine. We'll do this again someday. What I thought we'd do to start off, and I asked Daryl Bricker to join us to do this, the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, the author of Next, the book I keep telling you, it belongs in every house in this country, because Daryl's research tells us what's coming next in Canada. I thought I would ask Daryl some questions about the mood of Canadians on a number of issues. We generally take them one by one. How do Canadians feel about this? And then we go on to the next one. How do Canadians feel about that? But how do we feel about a number of issues? Daryl, thank you so much for making time for us on this Sunday. I'll always make time for you, right? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. Let's start with the politics issue. And We've been talking about the conservative leadership race. Uh, Mr. Brown was with us yesterday, and he said, essentially, he said that the Conservative Party is lying when it's uh, when it says that 
uh, he was not willing to participate with the party and and their concerns about um, election campaign law being broken. So that interview is at globalnews.ca forward slash Roy Green. And as I said, we'll be talking about Pierre Polyev later on in the show. When it comes to the CP, uh, CPC leadership campaign, Daryl, who would the majority of Canadians, if they're going to be deciding which of these candidates for the Conservative Party should in fact lead the party into the next federal election, which of the candidates do you think Canadians would be most likely to choose? Well, when we ask them, they usually uh, divide fairly equally between uh, uh, Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest. Now, Sean, uh, at the start of the race, Jean Charest would uh, would certainly do better than uh, than Pierre Polyev, but Polyev has been coming up, and I think that that's really just a reflection of people's level of familiarity um, with both candidates. So as they get to know them better, you're seeing Polyev starting to move up a little bit. But uh, I've seen no evidence in anything to this point that suggests that anybody that Pierre but Pierre Polyev is going to win this race. Mm-hmm. Do you think? And I've heard all sorts of stories about Pierre Polyev. You know, we read them, um, op-eds about concern about his attitude. Ultimately, my feeling is the party's clearly going to decide who's going to lead the party, and then it will be up to Canadians to decide in the next election who they want. If Pierre Polyev can convince Canadians he should be prime minister, he'll win. If he can't, he won't. But is there is there real interest in the Conservative Party, increasing interest in the Conservative Party, and by extension, a decrease in interest in the Liberal Party and perhaps in Mr. Trudeau. Yeah, what we see in, in when we ask people how they would vote, although people really aren't in a voting mood right now, is that the two parties are very close. Uh, but what we're going through right now, Roy, reminds me very much of what we went through back in 2002, 2003, before we went into the 2004 election. When Jean Chrétien was going through the process of stepping down, being replaced by Paul Martin, and then they had this new guy on the block, uh, Stephen Harper, who was kind of the darkest force that the media could conjure up in terms of what politically could happen to Canada. And we saw what happened through the course of that. So very similar type of rhetoric we're hearing about Pierre Polyev today. We heard about Stephen Harper back at that at, at that period of time. Uh, but the circumstances changed, and it made it possible for Stephen Harper to uh, to win, actually, in 2006. Uh, Pierre Polyev, probably going to win the Tory leadership. The question is, who is he going to be competing against in the next federal election, which is still uh, three years away? Yeah, assuming that the uh, NDP stays in the deal with the Liberals until 2025, I think it's maybe a little difficult for Mr. Singh because you find him on Twitter consistently criticizing the liberals, but yet he has this three-year deal with them. It's He's playing both sides of the fence, um, in my view. I'd like to talk to him about that on the program. But how do Canadians feel about this 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 deal between the liberals and the NDP? It's not the first time political parties have made a deal. Oh, we've, we've asked them about it, and they've basically said that it's okay. I mean, people aren't interested in getting into a situation where they would have an election tomorrow. So whatever it takes in order to avoid that, um, they're, they're all right with. But uh, uh, their eyes aren't specifically on Ottawa at the moment. They're not spending a lot of time thinking about uh, federal politics. There's some curiosities going on, as you can as you just mentioned with the uh, the Conservative Party uh, uh, leadership contest. But apart from that, it's, 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 it's pretty much steady as she goes. Yeah. If Polyev weren't in this race, I doubt Charest would be in the race. And if Charest and Polyev both weren't in the race, I wonder how much interest there'd be among Canadians, period. And I'm not suggesting that the other candidates don't have relevancy. But unless you have big names and big names that are going at each other, the dynamic isn't there to really just pursue it with interest, is there? 
No, not really. And and the, the, the person who's probably the most disappointed with everything that he's watching right now must be Aaron O'Toole. Because as we see, yeah, you know, the, sure. the, the liberals really struggle these days. Uh, you know, Mr. O'Toole ran a reasonably good campaign, just came up a little short last time around, but uh, certainly would be, uh, um, I would say, well-positioned to win the next election campaign if he'd been able to last. Yeah. So yesterday, Daryl, we spoke with Dr. Catherine Smart, the president of the Canadian Medical Association, and the great concerns the CMA has about the state of healthcare in this country. Later today, we'll talk to Rolinda Silas. She is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, and Ms. Silas has similar concerns. They will both be at the Council of the Federation meetings, which begin tomorrow in Victoria. When it comes to healthcare, where does healthcare fit into the dialogue among Canadians now? What, what, what's the big, what's the big healthcare-related issue? Uh, right at the top of the list is healthcare, and uh, what people are really saying when they put healthcare at the at, at the apex of the the issues facing the country is that they're really uncertain about the future of the system. So they feel like the system is under strain right now. But there's a there's an under, general understanding that the, the population is aging, and that the pressure on the healthcare system is going to get uh, is going to become more over over time. So people are really worried about whether we're going to be able to maintain that single-payer system that we have today and whether it's going to be there when they, they, they need it. Yeah, very interesting to hear what uh, Linda Silas says. Because uh, I heard her say the other day that one out of every two Canadian nurses, just statistically, are talking about leaving the profession. When you think of the stress the healthcare system is under, if you had 50% or even 30% of nurses saying they're out, that would be uh, just disastrous for healthcare. Where does climate change fit into it all? Well, it's it's mid-tier of the list. So, you know, uh, let's go back to the election in 2019 was the apex of, of climate change in terms of the issues that concern Canadians. But now we find it tracking somewhere, you know, down around 7, 8, 9. Uh, it uh, doesn't have the level of priority of, of, uh, as a whole series of other issues do. It doesn't mean the Canadians don't care about, uh, about climate change. They do very much. But just compared to the other things that are going on right now, there's more intensity of concern around other issues. Yeah, like the economy, sir. We can look at the economy, Daryl. Inflation, highest it's been in 40 years. Seven point, an interesting email from a listener the other day saying, saying 7.7% saying interest um, doesn't mean anything to people. We, we need to talk about the, the numbers that we can actually relate to, which I found interesting. So when we look at the economy, when you look at uh, inflation, when you look at interest rate hikes, when you look at food price security, the cost of gasoline and diesel at the pump, are they all pretty much of, uh, of equal interest to Canadians uh, at this point when, under the general heading of economy? Well, I would say the thing that most concerns Canadians right now is housing. Um, which to me is still very much an economic type of issue, whether or not you can afford to live in the type of house and the type of neighborhood uh, that, uh, that you desire to live in. Mm -hmm. And people, uh, particularly middle-class people, are feeling like their access to that is being denied. And inflation makes it even harder. Uh, the other aspect of inflation is that people are um, experiencing it in their day-to-day -day lives. So uh, remember, we're a car-commuting society. 
people are now going back to work. Offices are being reopened and people for the first time are starting to fill up their cars again and they're seeing what the difference is uh, in, 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 uh, in the price that they used to pay to what it is today. So it's the cost of fuel, but inflation being very much reflected in that. And then they get in their monthly credit card bills. They get in their monthly yeah. uh, you know, heating cost bills. It's real kitchen table economics that we're talking about here, very practical stuff. So this isn't really you know philosophical. It's day-to-day grinding it out for Canadians and then feeling like it's getting harder to get ahead. And that's a big problem for governments in this country. Now, the Ford government just won re-election over the, you know, a, a few weeks ago uh, and maybe dodged a bullet. But, you know, as we get into the federal uh, electoral period, if this continues, if this situation of real uh, sense of dire economic circumstances continues, it makes it hard for uh, for incumbent governments. Yeah. Um, we sometimes talk as though we're a homogeneous mass in this country, almost as though we live in the same area code or the same postal code. We don't. We're spread out over a massive amount of land. Uh, we have urban population centers that are quite large, but we also have significant numbers of smaller population centers. So we're all spread out. How consistent is the message among Canadians? How we, what are they telling you? What are Canadians telling you about their concerns? And does, is there an east-west divide? Is there a line that I, could, that, I could, that I could mark on a Canadian map and say, on this side, on the east side, there's more of this uh, preponderance of this kind of opinion. And on the other side, on the western side, there's a preponderance on this. Well, it tends to be as much rural-urban as it is uh, as it is oh, east-west. Yes, but so for example, if but there are you know east-west differences. So if you go to a place like Toronto or you go to a place like Vancouver, housing's right at the top of the list. Inflation obviously is is important too, but these are also people who are more concerned about things like, for example, climate change or um, things that would be related to uh, uh, you know individual rights and that kind of thing. So downtown urban communities tend to have a, a bit of a different agenda. Uh, when you go out to suburban communities, uh, things tend to get a lot more practical and less philosophical. Yes, they're also concerned about housing costs, but then they're concerned about cost of living issues, the education of their kids, that kind of thing. These, that's, that's where the middle class families in this country live. They tend to be in, in, um, in, uh, in suburban car commuting uh, communities. And then when you get out to rural communities, it's access to everything. Because rural communities tend to have much older populations, lower tax bases, and things are not opening up there. Things are ten- tend to be closing down. Because Canada right now is basically an 80-20 country in which 80% of us live in a, a, a fairly larger community and 20% of us live in smaller communities. And that smaller community number keeps getting smaller every year. So, yeah, it is, it is quite a diverse country. One place where people geographically tend to disagree on a major issue is on energy issues. So, you know, the future of the oil and gas industry. Obviously, in places like Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, they tend to have one uh, point of view. The far west, um, British Columbia, actually looks more like how Ontario feels about this or Quebec feels about this. Uh, so there are some regional differences, but they tend to be, as I said before, more urban, uh, rural, suburban than they are really geographic. Yeah, my friend Dan McTagg says, we can expect gasoline prices to start to climb again today. Uh, he's going to be with us later on. So it, uh, in, in the one minute we have left here, when it comes again to the tabletop issues or the gas tank issues, um, how volatile is opinion on gaso- gasoline price? If gas were to go to Sit down, folks. Hang on to the edge of the table. If it were to go to two fifty a liter for regular gas, what happens to the what happens to the priority issues then? Oh, it goes it goes right to the top of the list. 
I mean, uh, you know, the, as much as people are, you know, interested in things like electric cars and, you know, changing the way that we tr- transport ourselves, we're really not in a situation where we can, you know, flip a switch and make a change. We are a car commuting country. And yeah. if you put that, that cost over the edge of people's ability to, to be able to afford it, we're going to have big problems. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 